Hello! Welcome to the Sun, the Moon, and the Hoosier State. This podcast is about eclipses and their history, explored through their connections to the state of Indiana. It's a history full of people who have watched and studied eclipses and been moved by the experience, and the ongoing story of a state preparing for the arrival of a total solar eclipse in 2024. I'm Dr. Sarah J. Reynolds, a scientist and historian of science in Indianapolis. And wherever you are, thanks for joining me here. This is the sound of the Falls of the Ohio, a stretch of shallow water rapids located on the Ohio River where it forms the southern border of Indiana, between Indiana and Kentucky. I've come down today to explore the site where one of the earliest solar eclipses in U.S. national history has a unique connection to the history of Indiana. 245 years ago, on a warm summer day in June 1778, George Rogers Clark and a group of about 150 Revolutionary War militiamen were setting out and crossing the falls, when they noticed the sunlight was darkening and the shape of the shadows around them slowly changing, each pinprick of light becoming crescent in form as the sun was slowly obscured, over 80% of its light being blocked by the moon. It was a remarkable beginning to an expedition that would change the face of the American frontier, leading the way to the formation of the Indiana Territory in 1800 and the establishment of the state of Indiana in 1816. Before we get further into the history of the eclipse of 1778, let me start by talking a bit about this podcast and what brings me to discussing this in the first place. Eleven years ago, I was a graduate student finishing up my PhD in physics at the University of Kansas where my research was on high-energy events in astrophysical plasmas, or, as I like to put it in everyday terms, big explosions far away. <laughs> it was really interesting research on gamma-ray bursts and some of the radiation that comes out of them, but I'd started to realize that I wanted to do something more than data crunching and theoretical calculations all the time. I was interested not just in the science, but in the history of how we'd pursued it. Because I think there's something awe-inspiring, not just in what we've discovered about our universe and the way that the things around us work, but in the many people that have devoted their lives to that study. As big and powerful as science is, when we look at its history, we realize it's also a remarkably human endeavor. It's full of curiosity and wonder and passion in ways that sometimes we overlook. And in the end, its impact is also ultimately human as well. It's not just about what technology we develop or what new discoveries we can put into our textbooks and, you know, all the things that that enables. It comes down to subtleties of things that change human lives, that change the paths of people's careers and, um, you know, change what makes people get up in the morning and all of that. So in the end, its impact is also ultimately human as well. It was that quest to better understand the history of science, how it works and how we work with it, that led me here to the state of Indiana as I started to work towards a second PhD, this time in the history and philosophy of science at Indiana University in Bloomington. 
And Bloomington is where I was when the solar eclipse of 2017 happened. Like many others, I had planned on going somewhere else to uh, southern Illinois to witness totality, where I would be in the full path of the moon's shadow and see the sun completely obscured um, and have that total experience. But about a week before, I was asked if I could help out with science outreach at the Eclipse viewing event at IU Bloomington's campus. And the prospect of getting to be part of that local event, watching the partial eclipse with my friends and my colleagues, while also helping others learn a bit more about eclipses and their history, was just too good an opportunity to pass up. I'd been working with Jim Capshu, IU's university historian, on some projects on campus history. So I put together a poster on the history of eclipses that had been witnessed and observed by some of IU's historic faculty. And although I was a bit disappointed not to experience the full total eclipse, like Clark and his men, I found that 94% coverage of the sun that we had in Bloomington was pretty impressive itself. And I knew even then that I would have another great opportunity seven years later when the path of totality would travel right through the center of Indiana in the eclipse of 2024. In 2018, I began teaching as an assistant professor in the Department of Physics and Earth Space Science at the University of Indianapolis, or as we commonly call it, UND. So now I'm one of many educators and enthusiasts around the state that is excitedly planning for that eclipse next year. In addition to working to help plan events on our campus here at UND and at other locations around the state, I've been excited to use this as an opportunity to also learn and explore more about Indiana and its history, uh, to get to know the state even a little bit better than I have so far. So that's my goal for this podcast, to take you along with me as we prepare for the eclipse this next year, to share with you some of the exciting science of the sun, moon, and astronomy, and to delve deeper into the history of how an astronomical phenomena like an eclipse impacts people both in and beyond science. Eclipses are widely talked about as a stunning and impressive astronomical event, and we expect the total solar eclipse in Indiana next year to have a substantial impact, attracting attention out of our normal work and school days, providing valuable opportunities for education and learning, and bringing thousands of additional people to the region in ways that can both benefit and challenge local tourism and transportation infrastructure. But what kind of event is a solar eclipse? Let's talk a little bit about the basics of eclipses to understand better. We live in a moving universe in which stars, planets, and galaxies are constantly in motion as they interact gravitationally with each other. Now and then, the path of the sun and the path of the moon line up with just the right position and timing that the moon can actually block the sun from the view of a portion of the Earth, leaving those viewers in the moon's shadow. That's what we call a solar eclipse, the moon blocking some particular location's view of the sun. Or at least the view of the bright main sphere of the sun, since there are some thin outer layers that wrap around the sun, sort of like Earth's atmosphere, 
and those layers extend very far out into space. That's what we call the solar corona, and we normally can't see it very well because the main portion of the sun is so bright. Being able to see the solar corona during an eclipse is one of the reasons that eclipses have been so important in the history of science and helped us learn new things about the sun and our solar system. If the moon blocks the full main sphere of the sun from our view, we call that a total solar eclipse. If the moon is blocking just part of the sun, we call that a partial solar eclipse. Sometimes the moon is far enough away that it looks a little bit smaller in the sky, and it blocks the center of the sun, but it leaves the outer edges visible like a glowing ring of fire. That is what we call an annular eclipse, because annular means ring-shaped. There will actually be an annular eclipse visible in the southwestern U.S. this October. Here in Indiana, we'll be outside of the full shadow of that particular eclipse, so in October, we'll just see a partial eclipse. And even though, for us, about 40 to 50 percent of the solar surface will be blocked from our view by the moon, the exact amount depending on where exactly you're viewing in Indiana, the rest of the sun is still so bright and is so overwhelming to look at that unless you're intentionally observing with a pair of solar glasses or a pinhole projection system, there's a good chance you wouldn't even notice that a partial solar eclipse was happening overhead on that day in October. To be very noticeable, a partial eclipse really has to block most of the sun from your view. It's the total solar eclipse where we're in the full shadow or umbra of the moon, our complete view being blocked, that is really considered to be the truly spectacular showstopper. Unlike other astronomical events where something is actually happening out there in space, an eclipse is really all about perspective. The sun and the moon aren't doing anything abnormal or particularly exciting. They're just going about their regular motions. It's an event because of how those motions happen to line up so that the moon's shadow falls at a particular Earth location. We'll talk more about the complexity of the sun and the moon's motion and the long history of how people learn to predict eclipses in a future episode. But for now, know that even though a solar eclipse can happen somewhere on Earth between two to five times a year, it takes a long time for the alignment to be just right for a total solar eclipse at a particular location, often hundreds of years. If you really want to see more than one total solar eclipse, usually it's you that has to travel, because the sun and the moon are always on the move, and they rarely do repeat bookings. So a total solar eclipse at a particular viewing location is a rare event, at least as we humans tend to measure time. And it's an event that impresses and impacts both people and animals, as the sun, the source of light and warmth that every living thing here depends on so completely, is blocked in our sky. Throughout history, poets have written about it, religions have taught about it, wars and politics even been impacted by it. So let's get back to the eclipse of June 24th, 1778. What amazes me about this eclipse is that it's so early in the history of the U.S. as a country, and it even predates Indiana's formation as a state. 
And yet, one of the main records we have about this eclipse being observed happens right here on the southern border of Indiana. In 1778, the Revolutionary War was going strong. It had been three years since the first shots were fired at Lexington and Concord, nearly two years since the United States had officially declared their independence, and it would be another five years before the war was over. The British Army had just withdrawn from their nine-month occupation of Philadelphia due to new threats posed by the official entry of France into the war as a U.S. ally. George Washington was preparing his troops to attack the British as they traveled to bolster their defenses in New York. And far to the west, on the southern edge of what would become Indiana, Colonel George Rogers Clark was preparing to enact a carefully kept secret campaign to seize control of the western Illinois Territory, which was a large region that stretched across the present-day states of Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio. It's hard to imagine what the land that would become the state of Indiana must have been like then, still rich with dense old-growth forests, nut trees, and wildlife, forests so thick that they seemed almost impenetrable in places to the arriving settlers. One early history of Indiana University describes the land before it was cleared for farming as being full of magnificent tulip poplar trees, many of them from four to six feet in diameter and rising to a height of 60 to 80 feet before branching. While parts of New England and the East Coast had already been settled by colonists for over a hundred years at this point, the territory west of the Appalachians and north of the Ohio River remained largely the domain of its indigenous people groups. Some of these tribes were long connected to the region, while others had migrated due to being displaced from further east. The French had established early forts and trading outposts along several of the major rivers, though the control of the region had been officially ceded to the British in the 1760s after the French and Indian War. At the time, rivers were the easiest modes of long-distance travel, transportation, and trade in the interior of the continent, and these were the general corridors for exploration and discovery. The Ohio River, which forms the southern boundary of Indiana, separating it from Kentucky, was one of these major corridors. From Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the Ohio River stretches over 950 miles west to reach the Mississippi River. It also connects to the Allegheny River, Tennessee River, and the Wabash River, allowing access to an even larger re region. And the falls of the Ohio are one of the few navigation hazards that existed along that length, requiring boats to navigate carefully past the shallow limestone beds and elevation changes. George Rogers Clark was 25 on that summer day on the Ohio River in 1778 when he witnessed the solar eclipse. Born in Virginia, he'd come to Kentucky looking for opportunity as well as a place to settle, and had already established himself as a leader in the region and its militia. Recognizing the strategic military importance of the river outposts on the Ohio, Mississippi, and Wabash rivers, both in fostering attacks on the frontier settlers and in the larger British supply chain, Clark had gotten approval to lead troops down the Ohio River, then cross over land for a surprise attack on the fort at Kaskaskia on the Mississippi. From there, he would proceed to take over other outposts in the region. 
In late May of 1778, Clark and a couple hundred of enlisted men, as well as a handful of settler families, had arrived and established an initial settlement on Corn Island, near the falls of the Ohio, and close to where Louisville, Kentucky, and Clarksville, Indiana, sit on opposite banks of the river today. On the morning of June 24th, Clark and his troops loaded up in large rowboats to set off on their quest to capture Kaskaskia. Clark himself wrote in his account that they shot the falls, meaning they were crossing the treacherous river rapids there, at the very moment of the sun being in a great eclipse, which caused various conjectures among the superstitious. It would have been mid-morning, about 10 to 10.30 a.m., when up to 86% of the sun was obscured as they made their way past the falls and down the river. Superstitious or not, not everyone traveling with Clark was necessarily happy to be there. The mission, only recently fully explained to them due to its secrecy, took them farther from their homes and deeper into dangerous territory than many of them had expected. A handful of men had already deserted. Those deserters that could be caught had been brought back and whipped before being reassigned among the troops for the journey. Several enslaved persons were also brought along on the mission by Clark and maybe other slaveholders. Little is known about most of the enslaved people traveling with them other than that some of their names are mentioned in Clark's receipts and records. So we might ask, who else was noticing the solar eclipse that day and what did they think about its meaning? This particular eclipse had a long track. Its path of totality started in the Pacific Ocean west of Mexico and progressed across Mexico, across Louisiana, and across the southern states up to Virginia before crossing the Atlantic Ocean to pass just south of the Strait of Gibraltar and proceed across northern Africa. Outside the main path of totality where the full sun was obscured, the entirety of the 13 original U.S. colonies was able to see at least 75% of the sun obscured that day, if the weather permitted. Thomas Jefferson's correspondence shows that he and other early Americans were interested in the science of the 1778 eclipse. Jefferson was disappointed that clouds blocked his view for most of the partial eclipse's visibility at his estate, Monticello, in Virginia but he was glad to hear from David Rittenhouse in Philadelphia and others that they had managed to see it better and make carefully timed observations of its progression. Another friend of Jefferson's wrote him from Williamsburg, Virginia, that they had been able to see the end of the total solar eclipse there once the clouds cleared after its beginning. The writer noted that there was really something awful in the appearance which all nature assumed. With the sky under the eclipse darkened so much that you could not recognize your closest friend standing down the street. But my favorite part of this letter to Jefferson is that the author adds, Lightning bugs were seen, as at night. A reference to the sort of effects that we see eclipses have on other creatures. The other thing that I think is especially fascinating about the eclipse of 1778 is that we see that people are already considering how to better inform others about what's coming diminishing superstition to allow for appreciation rather than panic. For a partial eclipse the year before, in January of 1777, Thomas Wharton from the Pennsylvania Council of Safety had written George Washington to make sure his troops were all alerted to the occasion and wouldn't panic or be alarmed in ways that might impact the war. And we know that Washington's troops were similarly well informed about the event in 1778. 
one young Revolutionary War soldier that was part of the group on the march after the retreating British noted that they got their orders on the day the sun was eclipsed. And though, had this happened upon such an occasion in olden time, it would have been considered ominous, either of good or bad fortune. He himself and his friends took no notice of it. So you can see that, at least in some areas, they thought themselves quite progressive in the 1770s to read the predictions of eclipses and plan for their coming without worrying too much about the consequences. After all, this young soldier, like the soldiers under Clark, probably knew that the much more immediate threats were all around them as they traveled, that it was the decisions made every moment by them, their comrades, and their leaders that most directly affected the course of their lives. Back in Indiana at the Falls of Ohio, it's not clear whether Clark planned for or tried to use the timing of the eclipse to his advantage. He wasn't leaving on quite the schedule he'd originally wanted to, but he may have still hoped the spectacle that morning would distract anyone who might otherwise be watching the falls for their movement. Some later writers suggest that Clark convinced his men it was a good omen for their mission, though I haven't found firm evidence of that in any of the historical records that I have looked at about this. Of course, there are others whose view of the 1778 eclipse we know little about here. Did the people of Kaskaskia notice the eclipse and wonder if some change was coming? Did the people of Vincennes, one of the oldest European settlements in Indiana, which would be taken over three times in the upcoming year? What did the Miami, the Shawnee, and other indigenous tribes living in the area think about the eclipse? Did they talk about it in their villages? Were they concerned? With many historical questions, if we don't have the records to answer them, we're left with the mystery. And that's why I think it's exciting that we do have this one little statement, this small historical record created by Clark, just stating that he and his men noticed the eclipse and conjectured about it as they set off on their mission, offering us just the smallest glimpse into this moment in history and what must have been going through their minds at the time that they set off that day. It would be a four-day river journey, followed by an overland trek through dangerously unknown territory to surprise the outpost at Kaskaskia, which on the 4th of July would surrender to them without a single shot fired. So that's the start of the sun, the moon, and at the time, the not quite, but almost, Hoosier State. Thanks for joining us for the first episode of this podcast. I hope hearing about people witnessing the solar eclipse of 1778 and the way they wove that into their history will help inspire you to make your own plans for observing the solar eclipse of 2024. If you're looking for resources to get started with that, or want to learn more about some of the history talked about in today's episode, check out our podcast page at hoosiereclipse.org slash podcast. Join us in the next episode, released in two weeks, to learn more about the experience of a total solar eclipse, as well as hearing about some of the people and places around the state that are already getting ready for next year. Until then, enjoy your place in the universe.